Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Now, I mean, you have to really understand your client, right? And you have to read between the lines because when you work with a client, you have to understand what they need and what they want. But then you also have to keep in mind that you're the one who has the creative capacity, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if one person, like if your client says, I want it exactly like that, that usually doesn't work because uh, as a designer, you have very, uh, you, hopefully you have expertise to know the best form of color and the composition and stuff like that. So it's basically, um, you, you have to create rapport mm -hmm understand what your client needs and then ensure him or her that you have the the experience and the knowledge to deliver what is best for the client and that that requires a lot of trust right because you have to um tell the person you know like let me do something you may not like it right or but this is something i i i think will fit that job or that commission. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's 
own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mars, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me again. It's a yeah. pleasure to be here. Well, it is my pleasure to have you back here. You have been a longtime friend uh, and instrumental collaborator in the creation of the Unmistakable Creative brand. You were a big hit when we had you last time. And I wanted to bring you back this time uh, specifically to talk about collaboration, which is a big part of my new book, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And I thought you were the, the perfect example of somebody that I've collaborated with that has expanded my own creative capacity through collaboration. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? So both of my parents have a creative background. My father has a background in graphic design and my mother uh, studied like fine arts at university in Germany. And uh, that meant that I was being raised in a very creative household. And I remember like when I was in my teens, when my mother said, um, you know, you're such a creative person, like, Promise me not to get like a normal job at a corporation, do something creative. Mm -hmm. And that was for me like, you know, it was normal for me. But when I talked to my classmates, it was like I was talking about unicorns on Mars or something. <laughs> right. Because to them, right, it's like study, some, do something, save or work at a company or work for the government, do something that makes sense, that gives you like a real job, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And with me, I've never had that experience. I just always heard that argument from friends. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and what about your dad? Yeah, so my dad uh, comes more from a, like a graphic design, like drawing corner and a, like he was uh, basically doing like also freelance art. Uh, he did airbrush later on, like back in the late 80s or early 90s. And then he became like a, a graphic design teacher like at a private college here in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And he's still having like clients. And nowadays he's also doing like uh, drawing sessions with elderly people, um, ergotherapy, that's how you call it here. And yeah, so both are really like uh, soaked up by their creativity. Mm. Do you have siblings? I don't, unfortunately. Ah, I, I, somehow I suspected that, but uh, I, I know it's never come up in any of our conversations before. Uh, one of the things that really is interesting to me is that you have these parents who have encouraged this. Didn't they ever worry that there would be sort of the uncertainty or the struggle that typically is uh, what, you know, concerns most parents about pursuing a career in the arts or pursuing a career that is is driven by creativity? Like, did that ever come up? It, it did as, uh, with my father, who's more like a security kind of guy. That's why he, he, he looked for a job where he could lecture it, right? Like I'm a safe job in air quotes. But because I was later on mostly raised by my mother, she was more the uh, optimistic go-getter. So she said like, uh, listen, if you choose to be a creative, it's going to be much harder. But if you're really like if it's really something part of you and if, re if you really must do it, then you will find a way. And she always had that, like that uh, fighting spirit, like like an Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, last time we spoke, well, one culturally, like what impact did growing up in Germany end up having on your own work and your own creativity? So you know, like a big difference between Germany and the U.S. is that there's a lot of. Uh, less risk taking here in Germany. Germany is more like a secure country where people want to have like a safe job. We have far fewer entrepreneurs percentage wise. I, I, I've just read that actually a few days ago that United States has about three or four times as many entrepreneurs percentage wise as Germany. And so it's 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 actually more something that is seen as suspicious or like, uh, are you sure you want to do that? Like, especially in school, right? Are you sure? Like, don't you want to do something more safe? So there's always kind of like an atmosphere of, 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 of fear. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there was something in uh, Michael Moore did this documentary called Where to Invade Next. And one of the places that he went to was Germany. And he said that mm. often in Germany, he said, despite the atrocities that Germany has in its history, 
they have made a commitment not to repeat those things. And people are often taught about the Holocaust in schools and, and the awful mm. things that happened. Um, you know, I've never gotten to talk to you about this. So I wonder, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how that has shaped your own perception of your own country, like having this as part of the history? Yes. The thing is that uh, what, what, when I went to the States, right, you have U.S. history uh, during high school. In Germany, you just have like global history. And a big part of that is spent on German history. And Germany is still guilty. Like you still feel the guilt about what happened. And uh, there's so many German movies about Hitler, his architect even, who created like the uh, kind of like neo-romantic like uh, Berlin, like of all the side characters, like like you know so much about those people and about the Holocaust. We have a very famous uh, Jewish museum actually nearby where I live, so you had to go there as well. And yeah, what happens is that when you grow up in a country like Germany, you don't have any sense of national pride. Mm. So if you like, there's no patriotic sense, because if you are openly a patriotic, right, people immediately, even Germans will call you like a Nazi, some people, right? Yeah. So it's being frowned upon. So you're always very critical of your own history and you're very uh, careful if you make any sort of compliments, especially concerning the past. Not when your soccer team is doing (laughs) well at the World Cup, right? And it's all, yeah, we're the best. But when you say like, uh, you know, I'm proud to be a German, I mean, that's still very difficult. Some people would say, oh, that's no problem. Other people would say, ah, you should be careful saying that, right? So you're you're much more critical of your own uh, uh, past. Uh, You you don't have any national pride per se. And yeah, you're just more uh, reflective about that. And it's still an issue that... um, follows you not every day but it follows you yeah why do you think that that's not more common throughout the world because you know i think that germany in particular obviously because of the fact that it's so well documented it was done on such a massive scale um we're well aware of their atrocities but i don't think that you know there are countries that aren't guilty of of equally horrible things why do you think that that is not more common yeah, well, well, if you compare it to countries like uh, Russia back then, the Soviet Union or China, where equally like millions of millions of people have been killed, right? Mm. Like in Russia, way more than even than in Germany with the uh, communist regime and similar in China. And I think it's because those countries are more authoritarian in their approach. And uh, Germany has become so reflective. And we used to be called like in the very early days, like hundreds of years ago, the country of the thinkers and the poets. So like it's one of the countries uh, where we read the most uh, along in the world, right? Uh, I think that the second most used language on Wikipedia is German and not like uh, Mandarin or or Spanish even. It's really German because we have so many entries and it's such a well-read country. Mm. I think uh, we are more critical of that because we still are a very... I would say a progressive democracy, and um, and, and that ideology you, you you tend to be more more critical of your own history, while other countries tend to be more nationalistic, maybe about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, as a creative person who creates media, who is an artist, um, and you know, just in general, what is the impact of having this history, and also where you guys are at on the world stage in terms of how creativity gets expressed and how media gets created and how stories are told in Germany? Uh, because I think that one of the things that's becoming very apparent to me uh, is that our reality is largely shaped by the media we're we're consuming. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, the funny thing is, in Germany, actually, when I grew up, I read mostly comic books. And um, Germany, I would say, I have to say, unfortunately, that our creative industry is quite dismal compared to even like other European countries like France. Like when I was a kid, I mostly read French comics, which are very popular in in Germany. Then I think I transitioned to American comics and later on Japanese comics, what they call manga. Mm. And all of them influenced my creativity. But with Germany, um, we don't have a good creativity like considering that we're the fourth biggest economy in the world, that we have low unemployment, we are, we're great at technology, science, engineering, all that jazz, but yeah. we're, we really lack in the creative department. And um, yeah, so you, you have to basically take get consumed by your neighbors, by America, by Japan, 
right? Like you had to get it from every any anywhere else besides Germany. Yeah. Well, I remember flying a Lufthansa flight to to uh, I think my flight stopped in Frankfurt, and I remember feeling I was like, wow, this airline is a bastion of efficiency. <laughs> like this is mm. clearly what they're good at. You know, like everybody boarded on time, we got off on time. It was the most orderly thing I'd ever experienced on an airline flight. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche, but it, I mean, it may not be true for every state that we have, but in general, that, that tends to be the approach of that we're good at engineering because of all the famous car companies, like the chemistry, like the uh, pharmaceutical and all those industries. But unfortunately, like in a creative field, yeah, you always lack that. But thanks to the internet, I mean, it was all replaced by creativity from all around the planet. Yeah, yeah definitely. So last time we spoke, um, you told me about this moment uh, when you were in a grocery store with your mother uh, mm. and found these comic books next to the ice cream. Can you take us back to that moment? Uh, and let's relive that because it was one of my favorite stories I ever heard on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I was around six or seven years old and uh, I, my mother and I and I think my my cousin went to like the EC, which is like we do have an ocean, by the way, right in the north. It's pathetic right. compared to the US. <laughs> But we still have it. It's tiny. Yeah. And we went to like a like a beach town. And, uh, you know, I used to be addicted to ice cream. I just I was like hooked on it. Like every time I saw ice cream, I just wanted to eat it like really like a monster. Just gulp it up. So we went to the supermarket. I went to the ice cream area. And um, next to it was basically a, a magazine stand. And uh, I was six or seven years old. I saw those very colorful like magazines and comic books. And I, I just like walked to it like being spellbound. I, I picked up like the issue, the first uh, issue of Ghostbusters, you know, the comic book. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was so basically uh, captured by the drawings. I couldn't read back then, but it's just the design, the colors, everything. I was so spellbound by it that I begged my mother to get it. But she said, you know what? Like you wanted to ice cream, like you have to decide. Do you want the comic book or do you want the ice cream? And it's almost like in a Hollywood movie where my, my, my head switches back and forth, right? Ice cream, uh, comic book, ice cream, comic book. And I went for the comic book because it was just – it just impacted me more and that was basically the start where uh, I started drawing and became a fan of, of pictures and motion stories and stuff like that. Yeah. What did your mom do after that to encourage this interest? Well, um, she, I have to say like in that time I was more inspired by my father because my mother was always into like fine painting, like using brushes, being a little bit more abstract. And my father was always sketching and drawing very figuratively at home. And I was just seeing that and I was just repeating that, right? I just saw what he was doing. I thought like, huh, that looks like, like, like fun. And because I, I was starting to read comics back then, I, I, I started, comic, uh, start, started drawing comics, copying him basically. And because my mother was also super creative, she said like, go for it, just go for it. Did you ever have any formal training or was it almost all learned through the fact that, you know, your parents were there and you were just exposed to all this material? You know, it was just like basically copying. I, I had a few mentors back in uh, my high school time, yeah. like comic artists in Germany that I emailed to. But yeah, it's just learning by doing and just doing uh, excessively. Yeah. When you were a kid, what did you envision that this would lead to? Did you imagine that you would be like an illustrator at a comic or, or you know, creating superheroes? What what was your vision of what this would look like when you were six and how has that changed with time? Yeah, well, I mean, in that age, I didn't think about my career jobs sure. at all. Yeah. So when I was maybe like 12 or on 13, I thought like, uh, this is so much fun, like I should do this for a living. And back then my plan was to be a comic artist, a comic book artist. Mm -hmm. And that has changed a little bit over time, obviously, you know, like, because uh, I thought like at some stage I didn't like drawing stories anymore. I just like the aspect of drawing and designing. So it went from like illustration design, maybe game design or like magazine design. It just, but it always moved around that visual design area, right? 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, so one of the things I think that obviously has made me one of the biggest fans of your work is the fact that you really truly are, are in so many ways the, the epitome of the term unmistakable. In fact, I think we can actually trace the notion of unmistakable creative and that concept of unmistakable back to one of the very first conversations I had with you because you said it yourself. You said that when you see my work, I don't want to have to put my name on it. You'll immediately know it's mine, hmm. um, which is so true. I mean, that is that I, to me, that characterizes your work perfectly because I recognize it every single time that I see it, even when it's not something you've done for us. Uh, and somehow you've also mastered the ability to, to take something that you've done for us and make it uniquely ours. Um, mm -hmm. So couple of different things. So I know that uh, from our previous conversations that you traveled all over the world, you mentioned French comics, you've mentioned manga, you mentioned American comics. What have you pulled from each culture that has influenced uh, the way that you draw today um, and your art today? Yeah. So, um, for example, when it comes to like European comics, um, they have a very like they don't draw superheroes, for example, right? I mean, they do exist, but they're very rare. Usually it's around more mature stories, all genres, and they have very characteristic looking people that are, they don't have a lot of muscles, like they're no athletes, right? So you have a lot of unique characters that kind of look like real people, but they're more uh, extreme, right? With big noses or other extremely uh, placed features. And that's something that also like inspired my drawing style that I was looking more towards like people that I could take from real life, just just make it more extremely looking, right? Just you, 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 you put more emphasis on certain body parts. And I was, for example, never drawing like athletes, like in the American version where superheroes are just, they're basically all bodybuilders on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. And I was never interested in that. So that that's where the European influence comes from. Uh, when it comes to like Japan, um, Japan has is very unique, obviously, and they have, um, especially when it comes to like the faces and everything, looks very stereotypically. Like there's not a lot of features like in the European comics, yeah. but they do. They have an impressive way of telling a story. They use way more images than than we do in the West. Mm -hmm. That's why their books tend to be like 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 paperbacks, right? Like an average comic in the U.S. is like 25, 20, or 30 pages. In uh, manga, it's usually like 80 or uh, 150 pages because they take so much more time telling a story. And they have a very, not all of them, obviously, but they tend to have more wicked, uh, wicked uh, fashion. Like the way they, they draw clothes, it's so much more unique than what we do in the West. And I, I took basically that inspiration and, and, and infused it into my own drawing style. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, French comics make sense to me. How did you end up reading Japanese comics? Because they're in Japanese. Did you learn Japanese? Well, I, I did, but much later on. Back then, it was just that in my local comic shop. We were starting to get like, you know, back then it was just ruled by American and uh, European comics, mostly from France. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like within years, you saw like those small manga and they were basically they looked like uh, uh, trade paperbacks, but with uh, obviously that Japanese drawing style. And they were completely different from what I've added from what I had seen before. Right. They were black and white. They had a very unique writing uh, drawing style. And it just they they imported a few of them and then they became more popular and then it became a real cult and a trend. And then you actually saw like girls coming to comic book stores, which had never happened before. Mm, wow. Uh, so I want to talk briefly uh, about your actual creative practice and your habits, and then we'll get into why I really wanted to have you here. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you alluded to it last time, but what does this look like every day? I mean, I remember you saying that you draw for three hours a day. Uh, so I, I'm wondering, you know, what, you know, what does that look like? How, how do you, how, what is your, your habit? Like, what does your creative practice look like? Yeah, so I, I usually draw before I, I also write a, a lot nowadays in English. But when I draw, I, use, I usually um, I have a, a certain amount of time that I want to spend on uh, on writing and drawing. I usually start with writing because I need more more um, uh, brain energy to do that. And when I draw, I can basically do it on like a, on a back burner with the music blasting from my speakers. And yeah, I mean I. 
I always learn something about drawing every single day. So there are tons of tutorials on YouTube and other platforms. I always want to make sure that I learn something new each and every day. It, it, it can only be, uh, it can be one thing only, mm-hmm. but it has to be something each and every day. So I make progress and then I do a little bit of sketching, right? I do everything digitally. I have like a graphic tablet. It's hooked to my iMac and I basically just start sketching in black and white to just uh, create like a flow moment Mm -hmm. and to really uh, get my hands used to uh, drawing right like uh, when I type before that uh, it's a different process than drawing so I want to make sure there's a transition Mm -hmm. so I do that for like five or ten minutes and then I start doing client work or do something for myself like in private and yeah, then I, I, I listen to Japanese pop music because it's wicked. I don't understand the lyrics anymore, <laughs> but it gets me into a good mood. It has a good beat and it yeah. allows me to basically flow with my artwork. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, You know, what struck me most was that you said that you're always looking to improve. Do you know what kinds of improvements that you're looking for before you try to make those improvements? And when you're seeking out, you know, things to learn, what do you go and look for? Yeah, so, I mean, there are basically two things uh, in general when it comes to drawing. One thing is that I'm looking forward to is is improve the craft, right? That means learning more about uh, anatomy, learning more about composition, uh, white space, um, like structure and stuff like that, which is basically the skill of drawing. And the other focus is more on the um, technical side is where, because I draw mostly digitally, is that I learned something about Photoshop, uh, new tricks, something about layers, um, about colors that I can use in a better way, maybe learning about a new program or a new plugin that I could use or a better way to basically um, uh, save my files with high quality but in a tiny um, size so it's more 
it's easier to see on the web and it doesn't take as many resources, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. All right. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and let's start talking about why I really wanted to talk to you, which is uh, because right. of the fact that you have been an instrumental creative collaborator. But I think to, to really get there, we have to talk about how this all started. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to me about like why, what made you see an opportunity to collaborate with me? And I'll kind of, you know, explain my thought process behind why I started to understand the power that we had doing this together. I don't, I have to think back of, I mean, I remember that you were approaching me because I was popping up in the blogosphere all over the place. According to you, you made me like really good compliments, very specific ones too. Mm -hmm. And then you interviewed me and then I started following you on Twitter and we had a few tweets back and forth. And I don't even know what the first project was. Was it like a cover that I it designed It was a book cover. You? It was a book cover yeah. for, for the Small Army Strategy. And I remember yes. you read the book and you came back to me and you said, Srini, this book would be much better if, if it had a good cover. Exactly. Like, I, I loved that book. I, I thought that for some reason, you know, like, um, like I could really add something to it. And I, I thought, you know what, like, I, I have the perfect picture in mind that really represents what you're what uh, your book is about. Mm-hmm. And I think you, it wasn't even like a, a commission, right? I, I yeah. think I just drew it for you because I just, it was like a creative urge. Yeah. And then I, I showed it to you and I thought, like you said, like, man, that's really, really good, right? <laughs> and it was like love at first sight. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good way to describe it. I mean, so much so that you kind of became my go-to for almost anything uh, graphic design related, uh, specifically when it came to things like book covers. Uh, you know, I think the, the thing that really struck me, and you know, I remember I came back to you after that to do The Art of Being Unmistakable. And what I wonder, how do you take the content of something um, and decide to depict it visually? Like, what informs that process? Uh, like, how do, you, how do you decide that, okay, this is like, even when you did the, the cover for Art of Being Unmistakable, it was kind of like, wow, that is pretty amazing. Yeah. So yeah, when it comes to book covers, for example, you have to keep a few things in mind. One of them is obviously that you want to uh, know something about the target audience. So uh, if it were a science fiction book, it w- I would design it in a way different way than obviously like a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that you keep your genre or your uh, nonfiction uh, target audience in mind. And the other thing is that it should reflect what the content is about. And when you have a book about being unmistakable, then you cannot have a generic cover. I mean, that would it's almost like a hypocrisy, right? Imagine like <laughs> writing that book and then you have like a really boring ass cover that is so like uh, generic and bland that people say like, how's that like how? How, how can that work, right? You, you write about unmistakable and that is complete opposite of what you're preaching. Mm. So I had to make sure that 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 person, right, that has a very unique fashion style, that is very energetic and then um, that the cover itself speaks exactly what the book is about so that it's congruent with the message. Yeah. And it didn't take long for me to create the sketch, right? Obviously, like the details and the colors, that took a while. Right. But to have that idea of that figure and that, almost heroic, energetic pose that was basically like coming like a blip, like, like a thunder to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I think the thing, like I said, that, that really the process of working with you and other artists made me aware of is the fact that it stretched my creative capacity. Suddenly the things that I thought I didn't have the skill to do, I Mm. could accomplish by working with other people who had those skills and complemented what I was trying to do. Like you could bring my vision to life. Um, Let's talk about kind of this process of how you and I work together, because I think that this is really in my mind, probably the best example of how creative collaboration has helped me stretch my capacity. I mean, I think book cover was an example, but I, I think we've had a lot of other projects where my feedback, I think was a lot more detailed. I mean, even, you know, I think that the process of, of rebranding, uh, the podcast as unmistakable creative, you were instrumental to that process. Um, so talk to me, let's talk kind of about the back and forth that you and I go through. I know that I've probably made you insane at certain points, but you know, I'm curious, like when you come to me, um, what do you, what do you look for in order to ensure that I will be happy with the end result? Yeah, I mean, you have to really understand your client, right? And you have to read between the lines because when you work with a client, you have to understand what they need and what they want. 
But then you also have to keep in mind that you're the one who has the creative capacity, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if one person, like if your client says, I want it exactly like that, that usually doesn't work because uh, as a designer, you have very, uh, you, hopefully you have expertise to know the best form of color and the composition and stuff like that. So it's basically, um, you, you have to create rapport, mm -hmm. understand what your client needs, and then ensure him or her that you have the, the experience and the knowledge to deliver what is best for the client. And that, that requires a lot of trust, right? Because you have to um, tell the person, you know, like, let me do something. You may not like it, right? Or, but this is something I, I, I think will fit that job or that commission, right? Mm -hmm. And then you do, do sketching, right? That's, I think, the most helpful thing. Instead of just talking about it, you create sketches of the idea, you, ideas you create, mm -hmm. uh, agreed upon. And we did a lot of sketches, right? Like uh, concerning like the logo or maybe even like a web banner or even like uh, additional covers later on. Mm -hmm. Like you always create sketches that are never very detailed, but they are very basic in the color, but they give you a basic idea and you take it from there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that you have always done, and I think this is largely something I learned from a handful of, of projects, is that you always put options in front of you, but you never go too far in any one direction until I say, mm -hmm. okay, like, you know, your your sketches tend to be far less detailed, and I'm like, okay, I like this, I, I don't like this, choose this, you know, and um, I think that in my mind, that's been really kind of one of those instrumental things. Uh, how do other people, in your mind, I think in a lot of ways, the fact that I figured out uh, collaborating with you would stretch my creative capacity was a really fortunate accident. I don't think I truly understood that uh, until it happened, until it just occurred to me one day. I said, oh, you know, you remember I, I emailed you and I said, hey, we're redesigning the website. I want you to design all the icons because we can't use stock photography for this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think that the fact that it took so long for that to occur to me is is really strange. How do other people recognize where they have potential weaknesses and where they might be able to leverage a collaborator to expand what they're trying to do? You mean where the um, the client um, has yeah. weakness? Yeah. I mean, how does somebody come to the realization that I did that, hey, wait a minute, this is something that I want to bring to life and rather than me trying to do it myself, I should find somebody like Mars to do it with. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it always starts with an open mind and a desire to collaborate and to to have basically to take a risk. I mean, it, it's always connected to risk, right? Um, the other person is not gonna be a robot that uh, does everything you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to trust that you're hiring, the reason why you hire someone is because you usually don't have the time or the talent to do it yourself, right? Yeah. So it's a, a back and forth. And uh, you should have, basically, it, it comes down to being open-minded, having the desi desire to collaborate, and uh, to really uh, pick the right person that you think is a good fit for you that really compensates for what you lack. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you've brought up... Um trust uh, and being open-minded multiple times throughout this conversation, mm. which I think is, is such an interesting uh, part of collaboration. And, and I, I think that one of the things that trips people up is they have a very stubborn vision of what they want something to look like. And when it doesn't meet that expectation, they feel that the collaboration is a disaster and, and, you know, all sorts of bad stuff happens. But I mean, you and I haven't exactly, it hasn't always been smooth sailing. I think the, the movie posters were a perfect example of mm -hmm. over and over and over and over. How did you keep from, you know, losing your mind and not wanting to work for, with me again? Well, I think at, at that stage, I had worked with you multiple times before. So that helped. We had Skype before. So we actually had well, already a tight relationship. And I have to say, with that example, I think it has also to do with cultural understanding because I'm from Germany <laughs> and you're from the US right. and there are some cultural differences. <laughs> and in Germany, for example, people always tell you straight away what they want and mm -hmm. they tell you what's wrong. And in the US, it tends to be more uh, less direct. Mm -hmm. And it's more like you have to read between the lines. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And then you have to think, because I was, you know, for the posters, a lot of them were women, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was just, and that was my German style where I thought, you know, just like, 
be inspired by the photographs and then draw the way they are. And if yeah. they have like uh, crow's feet around their ears, right? Right. Then you include it and you were basically saying, no, you can't do that. Like that's going to like... I I can't have them right. So I was a bit more pleasant, <laughs> and I did a little of a little bit of youth uh, extension yeah. concerning the uh, characters, and uh -huh. that was something I realized later on. Well, it was really I think one of my favorite projects to work with you on, even though at moments it was a pain in the ass because it, it, to me there were moments that were hilarious. It was like you have to make this person look younger. I'm like there are way too many curves on this person, uh, <laughs> you know stuff like that. But I, I think the thing that really struck me about that project was how this collaborative process is very iterative um how you know you keep going through you know one round after another until you get to a point where you're finally like all right this is i mean i like to this day i i, I am blown away by how amazing that turned out and i remember when people walked into the room particularly the speakers and they saw those for the first time they were like wow this is by far one of the coolest takeaways you'll ever get from a conference Yeah, and uh, we, uh, I want to add something to that. I think the the thing why it was a little bit uh, complicated, right, and why we had a, a lot of back and forth was because uh, before that, everything I did was for you and your brand, right? Right, right. And in that case, it was, of course, for you and your brand, but it was also uh, appealing to the uh, speakers who were being represented. Yeah. So I was only thinking about pleasing you and thought like, I know he likes this one, right? <laughs> right. He will like this style. Yeah. If I do it like that, he will like it. Yeah. And I had the people that I was portraying not in mind. So I was not thinking about pleasing them in right. any shape or form. Yeah, for sure. You know, the other fun fact about this is that you and I have actually never met each other in person. Yes. It's After, crazy. What? Five years of working together? No longer, man. I think it's seven or eight years by now. So if we've never met each other in person for seven or eight years, what do you think that has allowed us to sustain such a, uh, a powerful collaboration that, you know, like has gone on, gone so well? Well, I, first of all, I still think you're like a, an, an alien AI that is communicating <laughs> with me. <laughs> No, so jokes aside, um, it, it comes down to, um, I think the relationship we've built, we can only build over time. Yeah. So there's no way you can have that kind of depth with your first commission, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something like, if you build something for the first time with another client, your first commission, right? You can really quickly see if you can build rapport, Or if you can build something that goes beyond just having a, a standard cl a client agreement. Mm -hmm. And because you really dug my style and I really like what your brand was doing, the inspirational aspect of it, like the, the backstory behind it. Um, you know, as soon as we had like a second or third project, I was understanding you, you much better. I was learning more about your brand. And the, the more you learn about someone the more you understand what their desires are and what they want to express with their brand. I mean, you can't help but being more emotionally attached to it. And then obviously after a while, it turns like into a, like a, a, a friendship basically. And it, it just, it's, it, it comes down to interest, curiosity, finding common threats mm -hmm. and taking it from there. Yeah. I think that, you know, you brought up interest, curiosity and common threads. Um, you know, As I was, I was writing uh, Audience of One, uh, you know, I dedicated an entire section to this concept of collaboration, and I looked at the, the common threads between the collaborators that I had very successful collaborations with, and I think the, the thing that really, the, probably the things that stood out to me were that was there's no ego or envy from either side for each mm -hmm. other's um, success or lack thereof in, in, in cases. Um, you always basically put the partnership over each other's individual gain. Uh, mm -hmm. No ego go at all, which we, we kind of talked about. And also confidence in one another, I think was another really big one for me because, you know, I was, I always, anytime I've done something with you, I, I feel confident that you'll deliver. Like I don't, we may not start out with what we want, but I know that the end result will always end up being what I want it to be. Yeah. And, um, because you knew what you wanted and I knew that, um, I knew what you liked about my style, right? So it's really about 
building the trust and yeah and and after trust right obviously you, you build the confidence because you know each other quite well in terms of the work um and like you said like you know if i only like if i had focused on my ego and just pleasing myself i think we could have never built that relationship because uh, you know my goal was basically to make sure that my artwork really helps you and your brand, that you have a direct benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And if I only think about pushing certain styles or thinking like, this should be it because that's my trademark and that's what I would like to see, then, I mean, it's just a blatant disregard for your client. Mm. So it, it really matters how you spend your focus, right? If it's just on you and presenting yourself, I don't think you can build any, that you can build any good relationship with a client, right? But if you really focus on giving value to that person and focusing on them and improving their brand and their life, then I think there's much better collaboration happening. Yeah. How much of your work um, do we not see? How much of it is done in private that you keep for yourself and you do just for the sake of your own joy? Well, with you specifically, I show you a lot of my work sure. because like all, you know, like the, uh, the alternative, the sketches, yeah, the yeah. version A, B, C, D, what have you. But with other clients, uh, I, I do, I do some sketching that they will never see because it's quite, uh, to put it in air quotes, dirty, right? It's not right. very specific. It's just for me to help me uh, uh, think about what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And quite frankly, a lot of it is also thinking, um, which looks like daydreaming, but it's actually me like really thinking about uh, what I'm going to do, like what is best for the client. And that is also part of the work because I cannot just like start right away the very second after I have like the instruction, right? I'm not a robot. Like you have to ruminate, you have to consider multiple angles and if you have thought it all out then you start with the first sketch and you think like how can i show a better alternative how can i show something from a different angle and then you just build it step by step like a lego pyramid mm -hmm. yeah uh, but the other question, I guess, is how much of this, uh, other than, you know, sketching for clients that you don't show, is there work that you do just for your own joy um, that you want to create, you want to see exist in the world, and it's just for, for your own enjoyment? That's a good question. Um, I do have a sketchbook, and I do occasionally sketch in it, and I, have, I haven't shown much of it to the world. Mostly it's about uh, figures. Um, certain concepts I, I love science fiction and technology so i draw like new inventions that i could use in my story or maybe in my artwork uh but i have to say lately in the in the past years most of what i do is actually like always with, with the intention to please a client or to just put it out there in the world and maybe gather interest mm. so because uh, you know my father is very reclusive with his work like he's just most of the stuff he creates, he never shows to anyone. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was a waste of talent. Like as a creative, if you if you create such amazing work, yeah. you almost have like a responsibility to show it. So I, I tend to actually show most of my work nowadays. It's interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny because it, it kind of goes counter to some of the argument that I'm making in this upcoming book. But I, I think that the thing that I, I've said, one of the things that really um, hit home for me when I wrote this, I said, you know, often in doing our work in private, we actually resonate, we, we basically create, we plant the seeds for some of our most resonant work that ends up being shared with the public. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that there is, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that that's the case. I think there's probably a great deal of value in the things that we don't see because they probably inform the things that we do see. Yeah. And uh, listen, uh, the more you do, I mean, I'm, I used to be, I don't think as much as I used to, and I don't mean that like in a bad way. Um, I think it, it comes down to experience as, as well. If you have a curiosity and an open mind and you soak everything up in your environment and what you read and what you watch and what you learn from people, and when you produce a lot, and it, that's so important uh, to produce a lot of work. You know, at some point you're just into like a zone where you can draw basically from any corner. Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, this has been truly awesome. Uh, I am really, really glad that we got to have you come back to The Unmistakable Creative for a second time. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Yeah, so my home base is still Mars Dorian 
dot com. It's Mars like the red planet and Dorian like the uh, picture of Dorian Gray. And Mars Dorian is basically my my handle that I use for my entire presence. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, do it at MarsDorian.com. Instagram as well at MarsDorian. It's a bit more visual. You see all of my drawings, books, covers and stuff like that. And yeah, that's where I usually hang out on the interwebs. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.